are in Deuteronomy 26, beginning with verse 16. And our goal today is to try to get to the blessings and curses and to be able to say a few things about those uh, in Deuteronomy 28. Okay. In Deuteronomy 26, as I'm struggling to turn here, Josh, can you read 16 through 19 real loud? several times in the text and God is promising Israel if they are faithful that they will be in exalted position among the nations in verse 16 uh, this is the day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances so you shall be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul in verse 17 uh, again, mentions their obedience. And God has declared them, in verse 18, to be his people, to be a treasured possession, uh, that they should keep these commandments. The very purpose of God bringing them into a special relationship with himself is that they keep his commandments. And when they do this, they set, he sets them high above the nations. And he has made them, in verse 19, for fame and honor. For praise, fame, and honor. And those expressions are used together uh, a few places in Scripture. But it's God's intention for the nation. They have to be obedient. God makes them into a, in a special relationship and brings them in a special relationship with himself. And then God will make them the highest of nations. That same idea is going to be expressed later when we get to 28 and verse 13. 28 verse 13, God will make you the hell, uh, the head and not the tail. And you shall be above and you shall not be underneath. But God is going to exalt them into a favored position among the nations. Now, let's go into chapter 27. Uh, Deuteronomy 27. The first eight verses in particular talk about Israel setting up Stones and writing God's law on these stones as a reminder. The book, of, the book of Deuteronomy has quite a bit to say about keeping the commandments. It has much to say about writing 
the commandments, writing them down, making them visible, but more about keeping them, doing them, walking in God's way. Something I read stated every time we do what we do, every time we do what we do because He said it, it is a reminder of who we are. And so listening to God's Word and applying it in every aspect of life, listening to what He said, the instruction He gave, is a constant reminder that we are His children. He is merciful and long-suffering and forgiving to us and that we need to remember our devotion to Him. But all of this draws us closer to Him. But in verses 1 through 8, Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, in order that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. A couple, stop just a moment. Notice the land which the Lord your God gives you stressed both in verse 2 and in verse 3. Over and over Israel is told this in Deuteronomy. It is a fantasy of mine that one day I'm going to count exactly how many times Deuteronomy says this because it is a multitude. Verse 4. So it shall be, when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer it... On it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law distinctly. In verse 1, it is the elders of Israel who are with Moses and speak to the people, encouraging them to keep the commandments. When we get to verse 9, the Bible says Moses and the Levitical priest spoke to all the people. The elders are incorporated. The priests are incorporated in this appeal to draw the people closer to him. And what the people are going to do is they're going to build an altar. Now in verses 5 and 6, the text emphasizes that that altar is an altar of uncut stones. Uncut stones. You see that emphasis in Exodus 20 verse 25. If you make an altar of stone for me... You shall not build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. An altar of uncut stones, because the idea is if human hands work on it or cut the stones or use a tool on it, they will profane it, they will defile it. 
It is interesting often in the biblical story how often things that had not been used by man play a part in the story. Jesus comes riding to Jerusalem on a donkey that had not been ridden. He has his laying a tomb that has not been used. Often that, that's a very important part of the Bible story because if man touches it, man defiles it. But he has this altar of uncut stones and they're to set up these stones on Mount Ebal. And we'll see Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim come to play in verses 12 and 13 in just a moment. But one of the things they do is they coat these stones with lime. They coat them with lime and they write on the stones all the words of the law. In verse 3, write on them all the words of this law when you cross over in order that you may enter the land the Lord your God gives you. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8 says you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. And make a point of that word in verse 8. You write on these stones the law of God very distinctly. And that's a good place to put a period. I think that's the official abbreviation of distinctly. But uh, look at Deuteronomy 1 verse 5. Deuteronomy 1 verse 5. If someone, when you get there, read that. Read that out loud for us, for everybody can hear. Across the Jordan, the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. Okay. The word translated expound in 1 5 is the same word translated distinctly here. And what 1-5 talks about, Deuteronomy 1-5, is an oral, just an oral giving of the law. He is teaching it and he is to make his, his, his presentation, he is to make his teaching distinct, clear, so that people could understand and now they are doing the same thing with the writing. The writing on the stones to be distinct, clear, so that people can understand. Both of these passages use the same word, which I think is only used in these two passages in Deuteronomy, to simply say the purpose, whether it be in our teaching, whether it be in writing and copying these stones, is to make the law of the Lord very clear. So that people can see and that people can understand. Now, this reference to doing this, and we'll find more about Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in just a moment. Mount Ebal is the mountain of curses. Mount Gerizim, or Gerizim is the mountain of blessings. This was also alluded to previously in Deuteronomy 11, uh, Deuteronomy 11 and verses 16 
through, or excuse me, 26 through 32. 26 through 32. When the people get to the promised land, they're going to fulfill this. They're going to do just as Moses said and build an altar of uncut stone and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. And they're going to write the law of the Lord and they're going to stand on these mountains or before these mountains and pronounce these blessings and these curses. So the people were faithful. But all of this is God's effort to constantly keep the word of the Lord before them. I know many of you probably have um, scriptures on your wall. The most common scripture I've seen in a house that have gone across the country. Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, you might have scriptures like that. You have scriptures in other ways. And they are to serve to constantly remind you of what God has said, of His message. And that is God's purpose here. Coat these stones with lime. Write on them distinctly. It's a constant remembrance. It's a constant memory of me and what I've said and what I have done on your behalf. But they alter, they offer on this altar peace offerings and um, burnt offerings as you see in verse 6 and 7. And Moses says in verse 9, Moses, then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel saying, Be silent and listen, O God, O Israel. This, this day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And the curse, they shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, and then what they say follows. So six of the tribes are on Mount Gerizim. Six of the tribes. Six of the tribes are on, are identified with Mount Ebal. Do you recognize any kind of logic behind where these tribes are placed and where they are. Sarah? I have it as a note already. So, um, okay. um, Gerizim is the children of the wives and Mount Ebal is the children of the concubines. Okay. Yes. The children of the wives and the children of the concubines. But, and I'll pick on you, Sarah, since you answered, who was Reuben's mother? Who? Leah. Leah. Oh, he's he's on Mount Evil. Did he get in his place? Well, he, get cursed, he got cursed. <laughs> he got cursed because he slept with his father's wife, which is going to come up in these curses that are mentioned. If you look in verse in verse twenty, Reuben did the very kind of thing that 
these curses forbid. So that's why. Which other son of Leah finds his way to Mount Ebal? Reuben and who else? It is hard to keep up with the mothers and some of these sons, but who else would it be? Zebulun, that's right. It'd be Reuben and Zebulun who would be sons of the wives who ended up here. Now, why Zebulun? Um, not exactly, not exactly sure, but I do think we can identify Reuben with that. By the way, what part does Mount Gerizim play in the biblical story? What part does that play besides these blessings and curses? This is where the Samaritans Samaritans built a temple. And by New Testament time, it had been destroyed. It was destroyed uh, about, or well, somewhere in the time of John Lucanus, which was about 128 to 104 BC, the Samaritan temple was destroyed. You remember this woman at the well in John 4 says that you say that we should worship in Jerusalem and our fathers worshiped in this mountain. The temple wasn't there anymore. But they still regarded that as the place of worship. This is a place where people come to worship the Lord. And uh, Jesus says that Jerusalem is the proper place of worship. He answers that, but he says it's not going to be limited to that. But all who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and truth. But this becomes the site of the temple. Now, what questions did you have on verses... Uh, 1 through 4. I know we went through it uh, 1 through 14. I know we went through some of this pretty quickly uh, but is there anything you have a question about, you know, Sarah? How big would these stones have had to be? Well, I've got a, I guess the question I have to go with that though is what exactly does he mean by the law though too? In all the words of a law. Well, yeah. Does he mean just like what he said in Exodus? Because that would have been on the tablet that Moses would have had that God originally wrote and Moses had to rewrite on tablets of stone yeah. that he carried himself down. Uh, but that is not, maybe doesn't include Leviticus because God is speaking to Moses from the tabernacle and then also here Deuteronomy. He may be expounding upon things that are said before too. So. That's that, that a good question. How much is contained? How big are these stones? And you know what exactly does it contain? When we think of the law, and you probably learned in Bible class growing up like I did, uh, the law Genesis through Deuteronomy. Well, Genesis doesn't really contain law, but it is a history of God's people. We kind of, we group it, and it's, and it's called that by the Jewish people too, but it, it doesn't contain law proper. The first 19 chapters of Exodus really don't. Either. But we're Twenty through twenty through it's twenty through twenty three that particularly record instructions and laws and you know some things in Deuteronomy might fit this like you said to re-expounding but I, nobody knows for sure unless 
Craig has found this in the last couple of days because remember he gave us a talk about this. But, but um, nobody knows for sure, but I think it's probably a statement about how much is contained. But this is not that unusual. I mean, what, what he's saying is not completely that unusual. You know why? You've, you've all heard of the law code of Hannah Lobby. You may not have seen it, but you've heard of it. You know why we know that? Because it was recorded on a stone, on a stela, and it was preserved after all these years, after almost 4,000 years, archaeologists still find that, and you can look at it and read that. And so this kind of thing was done by other nations in preserving their laws as God does with Israel. But I think Tony's probably right. It's probably a limited amount that is contained in what you have here. Yeah, limestone or, or lime, say lime or limestone or lime. I don't know. I, I do not know. And we haven't found this like we have found the local Hammurabi and the Moabite stone and some other things. Uh, but I take it that at least to some degree that it that it lasted. And you, you know as well. There are, there are things where the writing has been washed away. There's, there's a congregation in my hometown uh, that is one of the oldest congregations in existence. It's existed since 1826. And the sign in front says that. The sign is worn away. To such a degree now, if you go look at it, you would have trouble seeing it. But I know what it said. I remember what it said. And there are people taking pictures of what it said when it was more legible. But even then that stone kind of serves as a reminder of that, even if it's not easily read. And so th- this is gonna be a reminder of God's word. Josh, you had your hand up too. Well, thank you for that and um, that insight here, too. Seven feet, when you consider that many lines, it's not necessarily. But can you imagine the work that went into choosing me all Robin? Just 
who do you know that there were people years ago this is not nobody ever nobody claims this but some objective the fact that Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy and first Moses would be known in life. Well, nobody would make that argument now. I mean, with all the things that have been found, you know, people know that people could write. What percentage of the people could, we do not know. And, um, you know, when you start to measure literacy rates, that goes with. Um, you know, you can't do a 100% survey of those kind of things even today. And so, I, that's a good question. I don't know. But all of this ceremony would have served to call attention to what it was. And there was the reading of the law. So, these stones would have served as constant reminders of His will. And constant reminders to call them outside themselves and to Him. Now, they're going to pronounce the blessings and the curses. But what we have that follows is only curses. We have 12 curses listed. And these 12 curses are kind of a summary of a lot of things that are in those laws in Exodus 20 through 23 and other passages like this. The one that is dealt with most extensively is the first one. It is, idolatry is, in many ways, the sin of the book of Deuteronomy. And the thing that God condemns most strongly. This is the only thing in the list that's called an abomination. Some of these things are called abominations elsewhere, but it's the only thing called an abomination in this list. Verse 15, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret, and all the people answer and say, Amen. So, cursed is the man who makes his idol, who makes an image, who it's the work of his hands, and sets his up in secret. Some of these sins may go without detection by their fellow Israelites. The word in secret is used in verse 15. It's going to be used in verse 24. Some of these sins may escape the detection of their brethren, but they are reminded that God always knows. And when they're pronouncing this curse, when they're announcing this curse, cursed is a man who makes an idol and sets it up in secret. If they have such a temptation, they are reminding themselves that God always sees. In verse 16, cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. And all the people shall say, Amen. That was stated in 19 verse 14. To move the property lines in order to uh, cheat another out of his possessions. Verse 18 is a subject that's not been touched on in Deuteronomy previously. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Leviticus 19.14 has an instruction similar to this, that you can't mislead the blind, you cannot curse the deaf. Always a good measure of a person is how they deal 
with those who are in no position to help them or to do them good? Are you going to get a joke at their expense? Are you going to try to be helpful to them? Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. Verse 19. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due to an alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say amen. Remember in chapter 24, verses 17 through 22, it was stated that if you miss an olive, if you miss a grape, if you miss a sheaf in the field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the orphan, the poor, the widow. Now verses 20 through 23 deal with sexual sins. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he's uncovered his father's skirt. We've already mentioned Reuben. All the people shall say amen. Cursed is he who lies with any animal and all the people shall say amen. Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or his mother and all the people shall say amen. I think of Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. Verse 23, cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law and all the people shall say amen. In Leviticus 20 verse 14, that sin was considered so egregious that they were burned with fire. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law. Verse 24 and 25 both use the word strike. And verse 24 also emphasizes this in secret. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who accepts the bride to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. And cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Okay. Change gears just a moment. If I were to ask you people, which book of the Old Testament is quoted most in the New Testament? You're going to say, no. <laughs> Not I didn't mean to build you up to that, but uh, what, what would you say? Oh. Okay, Psalms is first. Psalms? Isaiah second. But Deuteronomy is third. Now I don't know if we have had the time, we're struggling to keep up as it is, but to adequately represent how frequently Deuteronomy's emphasize in the New Testament. Now, we've always alluded to it when we've seen it, but or we try to, but haven't got to express it extensively. But in a way, we can preach the gospel with the book of Deuteronomy. In Galatians 3, Galatians 3, as Paul is contrasting the way of salvation. <laughs> by faith, with the way of salvation by works, and he is contrasting the law with the promise. 
In Galatians 3, verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So Deuteronomy 27.26 is referred to here. Now, it does not contain the word all in the Hebrew text. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Paul quotes it, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now, if you have always obeyed God's commandment, if you've never disobeyed, if you've always obeyed everything God said in every situation, in every circumstance, there's no problem. But who's done that? These curses that they've been in, to some degree, Paul is showing are a statement to them of their sin and their desperate need of a Savior. Cursed is everyone that does not continue to abide in all things written in the book of the law to do them. But let's keep reading Galatians 2. In verse 11, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for it is written, The righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. A quote from Leviticus 18:5. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." Galatians 3, verse 13, quotes. From Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. So we bear the curse as people who have broken God's commandments and disregarded what He has said. But Jesus Christ experienced the curse so that in Him we might have forgiveness. The promise of God to bring salvation to man might be fulfilled. But notice how he uses two passages from Deuteronomy to drive on his point, one to convict us of sin, and the other to show the salvation that Christ brings. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So, this passage and this book is profound. Yes, Mike. It's really important too when you look at the label that you go ahead and continue in verse 14. So the idea is the law was given to the Jews, and they were the ones that were chosen as false to them. But in reality, it was for everybody, but specifically for the Jews. But in verse 14 of Galatians 3, it says, Christ did this so that the promises of Abraham would be available to the Gentiles, which is us. Yeah. Because we were not the Jews. Yeah. So without that, we. Yeah. Yes. God was demonstrating through his dealings with this nation the pervasiveness of sin, the 
intense need of grace that they had and through them providing the Savior. Um, Deuteronomy 28. Now, I've got a PowerPoint here and and I I may leave this for Bob to uh, expand on more. Lord willing, he will be teaching Wednesday Wednesday night. But let's say some things about the blessings and curses of the covenant. First of all, ancient Near Eastern covenants generally ended with blessings and curses. And I have I have fuller notes if, if you have ancient Near Eastern well there's a book ancient Near Eastern text according to the Old Testament. Probably not many of you have it. Because it cost about $130, $150. But one year Christy brought it uh, bought it for me and I rose up and called her blessed as a result of that. Uh, but, but in that um, when um, you see a lot of examples of this very thing that this was a common way to end a tree. They ended with blessings and curses. They ended with blessings and curses. Now Something that you will see, we'll see as we go through Deuteronomy 28, is largely the blessings, the curses are a reversal of the blessings. Let, let me illustrate. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 3, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. In verse 15, verse 16, curse, in the curse section, The curse section starts at verse 15. Verses 1 through 14 is the blessings. Verses 15 through 68, the curses. Curse is four times as long. But in verse 16, cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Do you see it is the opposite of verse 3? Then, um, well we can go in a couple of different orders here. But in 28 verse 4, Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your beast. But then in verse 28, Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herd. Verse 5, Blessed shall be your basket and kneading bowl. But if they're unfaithful, in verse 17, Cursed shall be your basket and kneading bowl. And then in verse 6, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And then in verse 19, cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The curses are the reversal of the blessings. If you are faithful, if you are obedient, if you do what I ask and keep my commandments, then you will be blessed. And he enumerates the blessings. But then he says, if you are unfaithful and disobedient and rebellious, you will be cursed. And he lifts the curses. Now, one of the reasons this chapter is so important. One of the reasons that this chapter is so important is because how it affects the rest of Scripture. What I mean by that is what I'm about to say in these next couple of points. Throughout the prophets, they speak of judgment and warn of destruction. But they are not simply 
calling out things off their own mind. They are preaching the curses of the covenant. They're preaching the curses of the covenant. And let me illustrate. In verse 26 of Deuteronomy 28, Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. In the book of Jeremiah, in these passages and in many others, Jeremiah tells the people that if because they have been unfaithful, that they're going to die, they're not going to receive a proper burial, and the birds of the air will eat their body. That was considered a horrible thing to these Jewish people. A horrible, horrible thing. And, and he says, Jeremiah preaches that this will happen to them. Look at Deuteronomy 28 verse 30. You will betroth a wife, but another will violate her. You will build a house, but not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but not use its fruit. In the book of Amos, Amos preaches to the people about how they have cheated the poor and, and because of their sin, listen to these languages. Listen to this language. Though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you will not drink their wine. Again, he is preaching the curses of the covenant. In verse 37, you will become a horror, a proverb, a taunt among the peoples where the Lord will drive you. And that is also stated over and over in Jeremiah. In, in, verse, in verse 38, you shall bring out much seed to the, to the field and you will gather in little for the locusts will consume it. When you think of locusts, what Old Testament book do you think of? It's not even rep, well, it's represented in the next slide. But what, what, what Old Testament book do you think of? Joel. Joel. But... Notice all of these things that are said. Hey, I'm not touching, I am not scratching the surface of what I'm doing. What I'm doing is picking out a few illustrations to demonstrate to you that the prophets constantly invoke the sun. And they said, if you're not thankful, both of said, if you're not thankful, this is what's going to happen. And the prophet said, if you don't turn right now, this is about to happen. What do you think the psychology might be of the fact that curses are four times longer than the place? For granted, it's not specifically stated. You have to think through that. We may not want to admit this, but we're generally motivated by the warnings of what something will cause than we are by promises of blessing to receive and doing something good. We're, we're more motivated by the warning of this one. Okay, your God, you know your God. And he's going to try to tell you to quit doing something physically. He said, you do this physically, 
You're going to die. We should probably be good at this. We may not rely hellfire and bruise on preaching. And we don't want to live all our lives there in the sense that we're only motivated our own lives by fear of judgment. But often that type of preaching is more quick to get respond. You just hope you can sustain it. And hope that you can keep them on that way. But I would say that Moses in this preaches what we would say would be hellfire preaching. But at the same time, there are promises in these sections. And when the prophets spoke of a bright future, they spoke of a bright future in terms of the blessings of the covenant. Of the blessings of the covenant. For example, in Deuteronomy 28 verse 8, the Lord will command this blessing, the blessing upon you in the barns and in all you put your hand to. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. He will bless you in the, in the land which the Lord your God gives you. God tells the people in Malachi 3, in verses 8 through 12, you bring your tie in the storehouse and I will open the windows of heaven and I will pour out a blessing that you will not be able to receive. Or, Deut or Deuteronomy 28 verse 11. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beast, in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord your God has promised you. Wait, I meant, mean, I meant to read verse 12. Verse 12, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heaven, to give you rain into your land in its season and to bless you in all your work. Ezekiel 34 invokes this blessing of the covenant. God is going to give you showers of blessing. So the prophets were preachers of the covenant. And they were telling the people that when they broke in the covenant, they would face the curses. And when he wants to restore them, that he promises blessings. But the curses, God doesn't, even in the curses, God doesn't wash his hands with people and say, that's it. It's over. There's no hope. The curses are for the point of turning the people back to God. We will see this in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 12, or 1 through 10. But we will see that. You see that constantly in Leviticus 26. Where if after this they do not repent, then I will punish you seven times more. Now, Bob able to expand on those things we see not or go into other things about the blessings and curses. But that, this is a this is a pivotal chapter, and that's what I'm trying to stress. Now, what questions do you have, you all have, about this before we have a couple of minutes? Do you have any questions about this?
as I stated before, 28, 1 through 14, is going to spell out the blessing. And the curses verses 1 to 14, the blessings verses 15 through 68, the curses. Sometimes the curses are simply a reversal of those blessings, and you'll see more of that as you go. But uh, the ultimate, the ultimate curse, how does this section end? Look at verse 68. Verse 68. The Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. He will bring you back to Egypt. Now, I don't think Egypt is used necessarily of Egypt literally, but Egypt is a symbol of bondage. It is a symbol of slavery. You people that I have redeemed from the land of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, I've brought you out of there. I have brought you into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But if you are unfaithful and you are rebellious and you continue in this way, then I'll bring you back to bondage. God bless.